is a new book for young adults and features Wheeler, the Koori warrior from Victoria, of course, but it's more than just a book. In fact, it has a more than positive message in the book about autism. I've first started off my yarn with Jordan and later you'll hear from Richard coming up in this interview. Uh, I'm from the Pequodon tribe in Warrnambool. And how did you meet Richard? Oh, I met Richard when I went to uh, TAFE. I, I was doing a uh, 3D modelling class, as like a little IT class in TAFE, and he was uh, one of the teachers. And then once I, when I was in his uh, class, I was, as he describes, as his uh, top A student. <laughs> and then... Um, That's right. <laughs> and then uh, once he pretty much uh, found out that I, I was Aboriginal, he uh, came up to me with this idea of Wheeler, which wasn't called Wheeler at the time, but um, yeah, he just brought, brought me the idea of, you know, a indigenous heroine and just wanted to work with me with it. I'm like, okay, cool. And then we kind of just uh, started working on it from there. So yeah, he, how I met Richard, uh, he was my tape teacher. And was there a connection or an exchange of culture between you and Richard being a Samoan? Yeah, we, we definitely had a lot of uh, culture exchange and I've learned a lot about his Samoan culture and he definitely learned a lot about um, my Aboriginal culture and just from mm. all that, we, we definitely learned a lot from each other. And what was your inspiration for Wheeler? Um, uh, well, well, what happened was I, I went to, um, I was listening to this um, Aboriginal lady talking and she had some pictures of um herself and traditional dance um, attire. And I made the connection with Samoan dance, traditional dance attire is very similar. And I know that in the Samoan culture, we have a very strong female warrior culture. And so that just sparked an idea in my head that there has to be a female Indigenous Aboriginal culture, a warrior culture that we just haven't seen before or that I haven't seen before. And I thought, yeah, I, I could write that. I, I could create that Koori female strong warrior. Um, and then I put it to the elders first because I, I didn't want to culturally appropriate appropriate um, Indigenous culture. So I actually met up with Uncle Lockie, who Jordan knows very well. Um, and then after I mentioned it to him and then I went to Jordan and that's how it started. And how did you include language in the book? Well... On, on that thing with um, Uncle Lockie, uh, he also taught me a lot about about the, my culture and language. So he he was he took me under his wing to like teach me language and do like welcome to countries for a lot of gatherings. And I really wanted to add a lot of the language in, into the book. So because uh, so, I really want to like revive this almost extinct language and bring it to like mainstream media where. Uh, people can actually learn it and then like it might speak uh, peak uh, interest for their local tribes so they can start learning their local languages. And how did you create the names for the characters in the book? Well, we'll start with Wheeler. Wheeler uh, was a play on the word of Wheeland, which it, which means yellowtail black cockatoo. And the yellow black cockatoo is uh, my totem for the Picaron tribe. 
and also also have a tattoo of it on my leg. So I thought, well, wheeling, wheeling, voila, voila, wheeler, wheeler. There we go. We got wheeler. Then a lot of um, other characters' names. We we got a lot of the names from uh, indigenous words, and then we kind of just played around with them, shortened them a bit to make make it sound like names. Because uh, yeah, we've got po, which is uh, which is from the word pop pop, which means uh, baby. So yeah, you just, uh, and then we just played around with it, and we got we eventually got to po. And how did you design the tribal patterns for the characters? Well, with the Wheeler's tribe, uh, Wheeler is Wheeler's tribe is modeled after the Pequodon tribe, which was my tribe, and the tribal patterns on them is the same patterns for the Pequodon tribe, because like. We've got the main one that goes over the bridge of the nose, goes down the cheeks, down the neck, and then goes all the way down your chest and then connects back just underneath the belly button. Pretty much as long as you have that, that's where it says you're from the Picaron tribe. And then you can add like anything else, like other dots or, or marks, just kind of like make yourself a bit unique. But as long as you have that little thing over, um, across your bridge and connects down your belly button, as long as you have that, you could, it pretty much tags you as your part of the Picron tribe. And then with the other ones, I, uh, we just wanted to, um, like, got inspiration from, like, a bunch of other um, patterns and then we kind of just um, did some drafts and then we just went by what what fit the uh, the tribe characteristic, characteristic. And how did you plan out the story of the book with Richard? We planned out the story because... We had like a lot of uh, Zoom meetings to just kind of like nut out the story. And then we eventually got, got this massive story where it, it could possibly get go to three to four books because we eventually wanted that whole story to be in this first book. But then we were asked to, uh, well, we had the idea to uh, just uh, cut it in half and that's what we did. And then now we look at the rest of the story that we made previously we can almost cut that in half again and make it into another two books. <laughs> and then we're already working on the um, next parts uh, after that as well. And did you create a world or a history for these characters in the book? Yes. It's pretty much every character in the book has their own backstory, has their own uh, like reasons why they're in, in the story. But obviously we don't want it to be like, you know, forcefully projected to the reader. It's kind of just, there will there'll be like ways to uh, to figure out these backstories just by either the illustrations or the body language or or just how they speak or what they say. But um, but yeah, there's we definitely did a lot of think uh, thoughts behind every single character and everything we put in the book. And do you have any idea what's going to happen with Wheeler next? Well, more books. <laughs> I could definitely say that. But uh, we do, but we do have um, like high, like very high. Um, what's the word? Expectations. Plans, <laughs> expectations. Yeah, <laughs> plans and expectations for Wheeler because we do want to put her in like an anime TV series, and possibly a video game as well, and then maybe some music production as well. But we do have a lot of plans for Wheeler, and this first book is only just the first step. Now, I understand you have autism. How did that affect you when you were young and growing up? Yeah, when I was, uh, when autism affected me a lot when I was younger, 
because when I was younger, I had like, um, I'd say like low functioning to medium functioning autism, but, um, but yeah, it, I definitely had difficulties to like, you know, sitting still or like trying to keep, keep my hands to myself or just a lot of, a lot of those stuff like that and like hard to listen. So I didn't really do well in school for that matter. But uh, as, as I grew up and found alternatives to like help me with my autism, I ended up like almost working with it and almost like adapting to it. And that caused me to, you know, like expand on the, on the uh, positives of autism. Like it's uh, like creativity and just like outside the box thinking. And the reason I'm able to think so creatively with my autism because I can lucid dream pretty much I can control my dreams and like think of like certain scenes like for like if I just watch a movie I, I tend to lucid dream about like oh what if I was in that movie or what if this character was in that movie what if they did this and I just play I just set everything in my head and just play it and just see how it goes and then and I did a lot with that with Wheeler as well just so thinking like uh, certain things. How did your autism help with making Wheeler? Because um, as, as I was about to say, uh, with these lucid dreams that I have, I tend to do a lot with it with Wheeler to like think about, about certain scenes for the book. And then once I think of a good scene, I project it to Richard and then we kind of work it off that. So pretty much with autism, giving me the ability to lucid dream and think very creatively is how I'm able to think of these scenes for Wheeler. And I understand there's a character in the book that has autism. Tell me more about that. Why do I have autism? Because I wanted to, wanted to um, create them in a way where it reflects on how I was when, um, when I was younger and had, like, a pretty low-functioning autism. But Because, uh, like, yeah, with Poe, he can't really sit still. He can't really keep, keep his hands to himself. But um, I really wanted uh, like a character that I could resonate with in regards to like uh, my autism. And I want uh, other readers to think that as well when they uh, see, uh, see Poe and realise that he, uh, he's on the spectrum, but like see how creative he is and how like how much of a, almost like a superhero he is and also just uh, relate to him as well. And what would you say to other people with autism that maybe they want to write a book or work with someone that actually has autism? What would you say to them? Like people who would have autism, I, like a lot of people would um, uh, think of it as a disability, but I think of it as a superpower, as I said before, because uh, yeah, with, if I didn't have the ability to lucid dream from my autism, I don't think this book would have would have had like, would, would have been as good or I wouldn't have like as impactful scenes or anything. But, uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. for those w- p- people with autism or people working with those that have autism is are probably like in the best like seat to create uh, like books and like just create things in general. So, it, so I say that uh, people with autism having the, the that creative aspect would definitely have a like a huge boost in, in this type of um, this type of creations. And what would you like people to take away from reading the book, Wheeler? 
Well, I want them to know that we we made this book not to point fingers at white fellas, but to put, but as a uniting call, because with with a lot of Aboriginal culture, we were very inviting with like culture and just with other people in general. So we, we want this, yeah, we really want uh, people to realize, yeah, we, we don't want to point fingers. We, don't, we, want, we, want, we want to like um, move past from what happened back then and then move forward into like learning each other's cultures and like accepting one another, just like not just from their skin color, but from their backgrounds as well. Because again, when I learned so much about Richard's Samoan background, like, I know it sounds bad, but like the more I accepted him, <laughs> pretty much, just from the more I learned from him. But um, yeah, like being Richard has definitely got gotten a lot tighter ever since I learned about his culture, and I want a lot of other people to do the same. A yarn there about the Koori warrior Wheeler, and that was Jordan Gould you heard from, and also Richard Pritchard, who are co-creators of the book. This is NITV Radio, and I'm Kerry Lee Harding, and we'll be right back after this short break. Well, the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair, it's coming up in Cairns again on the 6th to the 29th of July this year. And I thought it would be a good time for us to reflect back on Kayaf 2021. So I caught up with Janina Harding. No, no relation to me. She's the Artistic Director for Kayaf. And I first started off by asking Janina, what was it like to organise last year's Kayaf event during the height of COVID? Um, in the beginning, it was pretty daunting uh, because we're so used to putting on a physical event. So to put everything online was a bit of a challenge in the beginning. Um, you know, not only were we dealing with the whole COVID and the, you know, the pandemic and going through all these restrictions and having our community um, and our artists, um, you know, in lockdown, we just thought, how are we going to present this? Um, and then we had to go through the hoops. We had to go through, through our board. We've got a kayak board who, um, you know, was sort of monitoring um, on how we were go, going to do it. So we had to actually build a business case. And that took a bit of time before we even started doing anything. <laughs> it had to go through the board and get the blessings of the board. Um, so that, took, that did take about, you know, I don't know how we did it, but we, we managed to compile the business case which was about 80 pages um, in about two to three weeks. Oh, everything was just, it was like everything was fast tracked because, and I don't, you know, thinking back on this, we all heard about COVID and, you know, people starting to, um, you know, uh, be put into lockdown in March and we didn't kind of get the blessing from the board until probably late April. And then we presented this whole thing online, the whole event online in August. So, you know, we're only talking about a few months to get to get all this together. So there was it was so challenging. But in the end, I guess what, what happened in the end and what the you know, what we saw probably in the last, I don't know, six weeks before we, we actually launched it was when things started forming and all coming together. And it was the just that beautiful the beautiful moments you have with artists, the conversations that you have. And then the videos that we that we were um, sent um, by you know community and by some of the production um, production um, organisations that we actually contracted, we're sending all this wonderful material um, that we sort of that I had to go through and sort of work out well how are we going to you know because I had to you know uh, do the program so where what time of the day and when are we going to show this and 
how do we show this whole thing? Because our event usually only goes for a few days and we managed to, to show it all online. We actually presented it um, over a 10-day period. And then there was a whole thing about how do we... How do we sell artwork online? How do we do that? So we had to build a shop. We had to build a whole new website. Everything was just like, it was like starting from scratch again. Even though, you know, we've been doing this event for 10 years, we pretty much had to work it all out again, how we presented everything online. I'm wondering what were the highlights of the festival? And I, I, I can't really tell you what the, what the specific event or pinpoint an event that was mm. that was a highlight. I think it was all a highlight. Um, I don't think there was any part of it that wasn't a highlight in my book. I think um, the highlight to me was, I guess, generally speaking, was having artists and community people, you know, our cultural ambassadors, um, people talking about culture or about their culture, about their country, you know, about their land, issues that were important to them, you know, whether they spoke about climate change or fashion um, or tourism, you know, that they're, that they're involved with. All those, they were all highlights in my book. I think the way people sort of pull together and the, just their generosity in um, wanting to be able to share, you know, share their story, share their, share their life experience, you know, their lived experience to the world. Mm. And it was that whole thing about, you know, and they were actually excited, you know, they were really excited when they sort of worked out, you know, we're going to the, everyone in the world's going to see us, you know. And um, there was also this sort of, underneath that, I guess, there was sort of intergenerational kind of thing that happened too, where young people were showing uh, their elders or their parents, you know, grandparents or whatever, or just people in the community, um, Kaya online, so they were showing. They were, you know, phones are being shared, and people were actually tapping into the internet that wouldn't normally, you know, be bothered. People were actually picking up new skills during this period too, because they really wanted to see themselves or see people that they knew online, you know, and and you know, watch, you know, their favourite musicians and um, you know, people that they knew and artists that they knew talking about their art. They really so it just made I don't know. It just comes open up this whole new. Uh, platform for, for our communities that wouldn't normally, you know, be bothered or, or have that sort of incentive to actually look at, at stuff online. I'm wondering, were there any challenges delivering to online audiences? Um, once they sort of worked out that it wasn't our normal platform, like it wasn't our normal website, it was actually, um, you know, something that we actually had to create afresh. So I don't think it was, once people sort of worked that out and we, you know, we changed the colours and the branding so people knew that it was a different platform to actually, you know, to view. And a lot of the stuff um, that we presented was on, was on Facebook. So that was a good, that was a good platform to sort of show because it's accessible, it's easily accessible. And, you know, all our, all our events sort of went live even though, you know, they might have been pre-recorded videos. They were on at a certain time. So Mm. people could access that. So I don't think... The main thing for me that it wasn't was accessibility. So as long as we had the accessibility and the, I guess, the, the goodwill to actually, you know, really um, hone in on our artists and present them in a way that, um, you know, no one has ever, ever done before and we yeah. presented that to, to you know, um, Australia and the world, I think that's what people... So, so it's the first time, because Kai's been going for 10 years, it was the first time, and this is our 11th year um, here in 2020, mm. is that um, 
So for the first time, we actually went outside Cairns. So we were touching audi- audiences outside Cairns, you know. And like we we had we recently just got some um, some data back, and um, we reached eighty countries um, right across the world. And you know, there were so many people watching us; it was incredible. So the biggest there was Cairns, and I think Brisbane um, were our main audience. And then the next was Melbourne. So, and you can mm. imagine Melbourne, you know, in lockdown as we speak. They were our, they were our biggest audiences outside Queensland. With all these new touches that people, you know, people are, are actually getting more and more aware of Kyaf, that we might get a bigger audience next year if we go physical, you know, if, Kyaf, if um, COVID isn't around. We'll see what happens. You're listening to NITV Radio with me. I'm Lee Harding. Thanks so much for your company on this Monday afternoon. Well, the recent National Reconciliation Week finished with the 30th anniversary on Marbo Day, which was June the 3rd. And part of the celebrations of the week was also Eucalyptusdom, an exhibition in the Powerhouse in Sydney. You can still see this unique exhibition. It's on until the end of August. And NITV Radio Shark Pekova spoke to Emily McDaniel, a director of First Nations at Powerhouse, who also celebrated one year in her role as the director. Eucalyptus Dome presents over 400 objects from the Powerhouse collection alongside 17 newly commissioned works by creative practitioners working across the fields of design, architecture, film, applied arts and performance. It also represents the relationship between eucalyptus and Indigenous Australians, the significance of the Federation Arts and Crafts movement to the human impact on the eucalypt today. So let's have a look, a closer look uh, at this unique exhibition in Sydney's powerhouse. On the phone, we are talking to Verger woman Emily McDaniel, a director of First Nations at Powerhouse. Hello, Emily, and thank you for joining us on NITV Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Emily, can you please tell us more about what we can actually imagine as the Eucalyptus Dome? It's a pretty incredible exhibition that we've been able to collaboratively bring together. Um, A number of curators working on this project and it's a sensory experience. To museums, so often we're used to predominantly relying upon sight But this is an exhibition that, like the eucalypt, um, it also includes scent, uh, sound. You feel as though it's more of an experience than a viewing of an exhibition. It tells the story not only just of the eucalypt, but a story about humanity and our ever-changing relationship with our landscape or in in the instance of First Nations people, our relationship with country. And who are the artists, just to name few? Some of the artists that were involved include First Nations Fashion and Design, who have had quite a lot of um, publicity recently for their incredible show that closed out Afterpay Fashion Week. Uh, We also have works by Trulway artist Julie Goff, Dean Cross and an extraordinary uh, installation of Larrakitch by the late Mr Wannabe that stands centrally in the exhibition, which I've got to say are probably one of my favourite works in the exhibition. Um, Twelve Larrakitch poles, or, or formerly 
funerary poles that were commissioned for the exhibition um, and such a wonderful testament to his legacy. It sounds like a very unique project. Can you please tell us like, where did this idea come from? Eucalyptusdom really emerged from one of my colleagues' early research into um, the Powerhouse Museum's relationship with the eucalypt through collection, research, and also having our own eucalypt distillery um, plantation out in Castle Hill that was established in about the ninth in 1945 and as we've expanded our premises at Castle Hill we started to understand more about the powerhouse's relationship to this iconic tree. We have thousands and thousands of samples of eucalypt species from all over Australia that tell a story from the inception of the museum which is 140 years old right up until today. And in order to really invigorate that collection that had rarely been seen, we commissioned several creative practitioners, artists, designers, to respond to those collections in with new works. So it, it creates a continuous conversation about the relationship between the powerhouse and the eucalypt. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, you are actually, it's been pretty much a year now since you were appointed <laughs> as the director of First Nations at Powerhouse. How was your first year in this role? My first year and, and what a time to kind of hit one year on Reconciliation Week. It's been an incredible year and obviously the biggest change being I'm not the only one here now. We have quite a large team in the First Nations Directorate of people working across operations, administration, curatorial, programs, learning, research and collections. So a really large team of First Nations people here to support community and their expectations at the powerhouse. It's been really amazing to rethink what a museum could and should be for for us. You know, museums aren't what they were 140 years ago when the powerhouse was created. And look, I'm thankful for that. We've come a long way. But now the next few steps should be at our decision making for what museums are to First Nations people. Hmm. And um, as you as you said, it's it's the reconciliation week now, and Eucalyptus Dome is actually part of the events marking this week. This year's theme is Be Brave, Make Change. What does that personally mean to you or say to you? For me, it's it's not only of significance on Reconciliation Week, but it's our everyday work. It's why we turn up to work, whether that is rethinking the ways that we collect, rethinking the ways that we represent communities and place their voices at the forefront rather than the museum speaking for Aboriginal people. Um, We're doing the work every single day. And we had an interesting conversation about this the other day in the team. And we said, you know, often to mark Reconciliation Week, we focus a lot on what the programs are offered to broader audiences, you know, public programs. But equally, too, we have to look at the significance of the work that we're doing and how we're demonstrating the change. Mm. Well, listening to you, it sounds like 
powerhouse museum became this like exciting place to come, you know, not like these old museums we remember from school days when they are like dusty objects. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> look absolutely. At. And as as communities change, museums should change too, right? Uh, we should be mirroring the communities that we are tasked to serve. You know, that's really important to us. Um, so we're always keen to hear from Mob when they're coming to the museum, what their thoughts are, ensuring that community are engaging with our programs and exhibitions. It's really exciting that we open up um, the museum to allow people to know that we're here. My team is here to support community and we're always happy to see Mob here. Mm. Emily, thank you so much. That was Emily McDaniel, a director of First Nations at Powerhouse, joining us on NITV Radio to talk about Eucalyptus Dom, which is an exhibition currently on display at Powerhouse. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 